Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Today's guests are Anne Byrne and Brian Middleton. Anne is a board-certified behavior analyst with over two decades of experience working with children and families in a variety of settings. She is the co-author of Understanding Ethics and Applied Behavior Analysis, Practical Applications, now in its second edition. The book invites the perspectives of those within and outside the field of behavior analysis to offer commentary on topics including collective bargaining, moral philosophy, neurodiversity, compassionate care, and ethics in research. Brian is a board-certified behavior analyst as well as an autistic self-advocate. He is the creator of The Bearded Behaviorist, an initiative dedicated to the dissemination of behavior science and the inclusion of trauma-informed care standards in applied behavior analysis and other human services. You might remember Brian from episodes 32 and 63. In today's conversation, we discuss the history of the Judge Rodenberg Center, the use of contingent electric skin shock, physical and psychological side effects caused by receiving contingent electric shock, behavioral principles of reinforcement and punishment, the Stanford Prison Experiment, a timeline of legal events leading up to the recent conference at ABAI Boston, and advice for people who are eager to take action. In this episode, discover what's possible when learning doesn't hurt. To learn more about Anne and Brian, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Anne Byrne and Brian Middleton. Hello, Anne and Brian. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. And welcome back, Brian, I should say. Thank you. Let's start with some brief introductions. Anne, would you like to go first? Sure. I'm Anne Byrne. I am a behavior analyst. I work in New York and uh, work in New York City. I've been a behavior analyst for about 14 years. I am also the co-author of Understanding Ethics and Behavior Analysis, which is now in its second edition. And I've worked with the Global Autism Project for 17 years. I started when I was eight. Ha, ha, ha. No, I did not start (laughs) when I was eight. Um, (laughs) That is a joke. (laughs) And I've done a lot of work with service partners around the world. And as someone who's been doing behavior analysis and been sort of involved with the autism community as a service provider. The Judge Rotenberg Center has been coming up in the news every few years and for as long as I've been a clinician. So, you know, to be able to sort of discuss these issues, the fact that it's really kind of coming to the forefront more and more and more is, I'm I'm just really glad to be able to sort of have this forum. So thank you, Rachel. Yeah, glad you're here. 
And Brian, could you briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Brian Middleton. I am a human. <laughs> I am a behavior analyst. I am an autistic adult. I am many things, but I like to start with I'm human because that's really important. I certified as a behavior analyst in 2020. Before that, I was a special ed teacher for seven years. Uh, well, a little bit more than seven years, give or take. I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I like to say it's seven because it's nice and e evenly odd. So there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I started Bearded Behaviors in 2018 when my professor asked us to analyze his class and give him feedback on how to improve it. And me, being me, took him seriously and did it and presented challenges and solutions based off of the framework of behavior analysis, which I find to be very effective. And I love it. And uh, I posted it to the class forum. He took it down. He sent me a very long email telling me I was using problem-oriented thinking because he didn't like the feedback I gave him because the summary of the feedback was basically, why aren't we using behavior analysis to teach behavior analysis? And as punishment will do, I had an emotional response or five or 10, <laughs> but instead of doing what I have done in the past where I sent off a scathing email, breaking down the levels of male bovine fecal matter that he had dished towards me, I decided to start Bearded Behaviorist as a means for teaching behavior analysis from a fun and engaging lens. During this time, I knew about Judge Rotenberg Center, but there's a problem with what I knew. What I knew was that they used electroconvulsive therapy, which was wrong. And that's a common misconception inside of behavior analysis is that ECT is what is being used because there's a lot of evidence behind ECT. Now, that being said, there's also a dark history and still is some dark stuff that's going on with ECT. So this isn't to say that ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is all happy sunshine, rainbows, and unicorn poops. It's not. It still has its problems, but it's definitely more evidence-based and it involves consent more often than not. So, different animal. Let's back up a little bit. Let's take it step one. What is JRC? What do they do and what is their history of implementing electroshock? JRC stands for the Judge Rotenberg Center, and they are a residential facility in Massachusetts. Now, although they're in Massachusetts, they also accept clients from all over the country. So there are clients who come from New York. And for those of you who live in New York, there is an activism opportunity that we'll talk about. Maybe if Rachel, if you could give me a little, a cup, a minute at the end of the podcast. Of course. So uh, they do accept clients from all over the country. And as of right now, to my knowledge, and, and to it, they are the only center using what is called contingent electric skin shock. So there is a device that they use, which is, a t it's a backpack with that. And Brian, you may have more knowledge of this, so please interrupt me if I'm getting any of the facts incorrect, because I do want to make sure that I'm giving accurate information. There are five electrodes they are, are technically electrodes because I don't want to miss. Yeah. Okay. So um, attached to different spots on the individual's body that deliver a painful electric shock. It is correct to say painful because that is the point. It is a painful stimulus. It is correct to say shock because it's called contingent electric skin shock or CESS for short. 
um, or CSS. What the Judge Rotenberg Center says about this is that in these cases, more positive approaches, approaches such as analyzing why the individual engages in this behavior. So what a lot of behavior analysts would do, what I would hope all behavior analysts would do, would be to take a look at the behavior and say, what is motivating this individual to engage in this behavior? Is this an individual who, for example, is having severe headaches and might be engaging in this behavior for pain relief because there might be a rush of endorphins when you engage in certain behavior? Is this an individual who does not have better ways to communicate? Is this an individual who may be engaging in these behaviors for, for some reason that or for access of some either stimulation or some other reinforcer that we can grant them access to with a behavior that's more safe? And again, Brian, feel free to, to chime in if I'm getting anything wrong. You're hitting the nail thoroughly on the head. Okay, great. So... JRC, uh, in their public responses, has always said, our center is designed to serve those individuals who engage in behavior so severe that their behavior is life-threatening. So individuals who engage in self-injurious behavior that may be life-threatening. They've given examples of individuals who bang their heads to a degree that they may have gone blind. Individuals who where other options might include chemical restraints. So such serious, such high dosages rather of psychotropic medicines that they may be unable to walk when they go into the center. And that's what the Judge Rotenberg Center sort of talks about publicly when they talk about the use of contingent electric shock. I, I'm going to be really brutally honest here. Brutal mostly to myself. <laughs> and I'll say that, you know, a lot of behavior analysts, myself included, were in a category of behavior analysts who said, this is, it, it's terribly used punishment. Punishment is a last resort. Punishment is a terrible idea. But in those cases where it's life or death, I can see why you would have to. However, what increasingly comes to life, if you start to, peel the onion of what goes on at the Judge Rotenberg Center is that that is not the only behavior that they use this treatment for, which kind of calls into question whether or not they're using misleading information. Also, our abilities to modify behavior have changed really dramatically over the past few decades. Our Science has improved really dramatically over the past few decades. Our science has improved in the in the past few decades, but a, an important thing to acknowledge when we say that is also saying our science has improved in the past few decades, but that doesn't excuse the harm that has been done. Uh, oh, absolutely. So yes. I, I like to throw that in there because I know you intend that, but yes. I want to make sure our audience hears that. I do. 100%. Thank you. Thank you for calling me on that. Yes. Our science has improved, uh, 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 and that does not excuse the harm that has been done in the past. And I would also add that prevents us from doing more harm in the future, because when you know better, you have an obligation to do better. I think that the what we have learned in the science allows us to do much better, and way better than this, way better than contingent electric shock. And so the Judge Rotenberg Center has continued to use contingent electric shock when asked if they've used 
other methodologies, they've said, oh, they take too long or they haven't been effective. And when asked why they continue to use a contingent electric shock, it's again, you know, not only do we not understand about electricity, we also don't understand how severe these behaviors are. We don't understand how desperate these parents are. You know, I'm aware of my personal biases. I know that I work with a subset of this population. I know that I am neurotypical. I know that my experience is not everyone's experience. But if you are using the constant example of, we use this in situations where the behaviors are life-threatening, and that's always the example that you use, but you're also using the the methodology when the behaviors aren't life-threatening, you're not telling the whole story. And so I think that a lot of behavior analysts are having trouble speaking out against this because the information is misleading. And trying to find out good information is like peeling an onion. But not unlike peeling an onion, you peel an onion and you really only find more onion. Like there's like there's mm-hmm. just onion there. Like, mm-hmm. So there's a total absence of of openness and a lot of, of propaganda. I'm just going to call it what it is. It's propaganda. Right. They propagandize things and then they do a very good job of silencing and or manipulating the narrative. And then we get branded as sharing alternative facts when we're the ones that are using reputable sources that are open. Mm-hmm. Sorry, we'll jump in a little bit ahead there. That's okay. <laughs> Brian, you um, mentioned earlier ECT. Could you kind of differentiate then? Because you were saying that that has empirical evidence. So um, ECT, again, just to be clear, it used to be formerly known as um, electroshock therapy. So it's going to be open about what its dark history is because that's important too. Electroshock therapy or electroconvulsive therapy has an early dark history where it was used also towards trying to modify behavior, but it was used more like a pill or, you know, something where I do it to the person and then something changes after I do it. So it's not antecedent behavior consequence like behavior analysis. I am definitely over, over, oversimplifying here. So please, if there's any additional information or if I get something wrong, understand that I'm aware that I don't, I'm not 100% educated on this area. But what ECT does, it is effectively been used to treat medication-resistant depression. So there are electrodes placed around the head and a current is put through the individual. In the past, they were strapped down, had mouth guards in and they were conscious. Now the strapping down and the mouth guards are still present so they don't bite their tongue. But with rare exceptions, it's done with medical professionals present, one, and two, under sedation. It is painful. It is not the absence of pain. There are cases where ECT is done without consent. It's court ordered. And there are some ethical questions with regards to that. But more often than not, these days, ECT has been done and is done with the consent of the individual because they're seeking to find relief from a condition that is is really hard for them. It's causing a lot of suffering. Very for sure. I had it done. Yeah. ECT at, with, with consent, of course. Like this with is consent, part yeah. Part of her treatment because she also had she had. Um, medication-resistant depression. Yeah, and and there's there's reports of people who've done it and haven't had the the, the effects that they were hoping for. 
And that's true of a lot of treatments. So this is not a magic bullet. There is no magic bullets because everybody's unique. That's the foundation of behavior analysis for Pete's sake is that everybody is unique in what their needs are. And so ECT is that it's a way of, or a method of treating medication resistant depression. Okay. So I hope that clarifies a little bit. Yeah. So just, just then for the purpose of this conversation and when, when we're talking about JRC, we're talking specifically about the contingent electric skin shock or CSS or CESS. I like to call it what it is, contingent electric shock. We can take the skin shock BS out. I'm sorry. Uh, They're shocking somebody. We don't have to add the skin shock bit, just contingent electric shock. Right. And is it fair to just call it electroshock or is that too general? Um, Electroshock could be accurately applied towards it. I like to call it contingent electric shock or electroshock because what it is, is it's based off a contingency, or at least it should be. That's what they claim it is. Their contingencies are based off of employee reports and based off of reports of survivors like Jennifer Masumba indicate that the contingencies are, are, are definitely not clearly defined in many cases and fall underneath sadism in, Mm. in many respects. So that's a further down the road conversation as a part of this one, I suppose. Okay. But contingent electroshock, meaning that something happens, the behavior occurs, and then they get shocked. Mm -hmm. Which I feel very disgusted just saying that, but that's what it's that's what they purport to be doing. Right. And when they say what do they say about the level of pain that is actually felt? So that's interesting because there's been a few different ways that they have described it. Everything from a snap of a rubber band to a mild bee sting. That's not what survivors have reported. That's not what people who are actual electrical engineers who have been shocked, who know how this feels, have reported it. I was trying to find the conversation I had with one of those engineers where he was breaking down the ohms and the amps and the watts and stuff. And he was basically saying that, um, please forgive me if I get this wrong, but basically it was uh, the electronic decelerator. That's the name of the device that they use. One of them, there's the ECT and then the ECT4. GED. GED. Yeah, GED. There we go. The GED and the GED4. Oof, I'm acronyms and we're I not know. friends. Tell uh, me about it. <laughs> one of those two devices, its power is a slightly uh, amped up version of the US current that flows through our walls here in the United States. And I think wow. Canada has a very similar system. So if anybody has been been shocked briefly, and by shocked, I mean more than just a quick zap mm-hmm. by an electric current in a household inside the, the continental US, then they have probably experienced something roughly akin to that. The amperage is higher for comparison purposes, because by doing this comparison, it helps to put this into perspective. The legal limit in the United States of America for a taser or stun gun is five milliamps. The least powerful device that Judge Rotenberg Center uses is 30 milliamps. The most powerful device that Judge Rotenberg uses is is 90 milliamps. Death occurs at 100 milliamps. That has consistently been the case. Now, some people can survive that, of course, um, and there's other conditions too. And then there's other things that come into it, like resistance. 
uh, skin resistance is a factor that they keep on saying, well, you know, it's skin resistance that you're not taking that into account. And resistance basically means that it, it reduces the power because it's going through a material, in this case, skin, that resists the electrical current and thus reduces the power through resistance. But tasers do that too. And it's really painful. And you lose muscle control and your body tenses up and people have died from tasers. And then when you add in the fact that this person has to carry this device around with them 24-7, the fact that there's one of five electrodes strapped to their body where when that button is pushed, it will randomly deliver the shock to one of those portions of the body. When you add in the fact that it is documented that these devices will fire at random and they even have a little name that they give for it, which I blocked from my memory because it's just horrifying, but that some survivors have talked about how employees laughed about how it was a misfire or, well, they must have done something in their mind, you know, jokes like that. Just that is torture. Just that. According to the UN, according to all things that are good when we talk about humanity, that is torture. Then you add in the culture in Judge Rotenberg Center, which has been reported by survivors and former employees, some of whom who have been threatened with legal action for sharing this information, and many of whom have come out anonymously so as not to be attacked or, or sued because Judge Rotenberg Center is highly litigious, as I have experienced personally. <laughs> um, and they talk about how there's dehumanizing language. They talk about how there's um, passing of responsibility towards other people and saying, well, I'm just doing my job. That sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? That sounds like every single time that we've dealt with human rights violations in the world, in history, is when somebody who's underneath and stuck within a structure, they're just trying to survive. And so they have to figure out a way of justifying that horror to themselves so that way they're not themselves falling apart. There's an entire theory that goes into this Albert Bandura's moral disengagement theory if we had time, I could pull it up and we could go through every single component of moral disengagement. And I can give you examples of how in Judge Rotenberg Center, they consistently hit every single one of them so that it's not a boxing bell, ding, ding. It's a continuous ring. Mm. It is painful to be able to see how disengaged they are and then how this is transferring over to other behavior analysts. Now I'm a little worried about getting sued. So I'm just going to say on a totally unrelated note, I uh, had the pleasure of talking to uh, Philip Zimbardo, who is the lead researcher on the Stanford prison experiment. <laughs> um, totally unrelated. And <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, who aren't old like me, the Stanford prison experiment was a study that was supposed to look at the, the original research question was how would the behavior of individuals change if they were in a prison environment? So originally he was supposed to look at the behavior of prisoners. It was supposed to last two weeks. And what Philip Zimbardo and his fellow researchers did was, was randomly assign 17 to 22 year old young men to either prisoners or guards. And what they found was about a day into the study, the prisoners 
rebelled against the guards. And after that, the whole study took a turn and the guards started to try and sort of grab back power and started engaging in these terrible, terrible abuses. It's also important to note, because a lot of people who don't know about the Stanford study, they like to say, well, you know, they might have had some bad apples. Every single participant was very thoroughly screened. Yeah. And anybody who had any abnormal characteristics was excluded. Right. And I would argue (laughs) that they did a very good job of seeing how neurotypicals behave in authority structures because they screened out people who were abnormal. So if there was anybody who was neurodiverse, who wasn't falling within the normal range, this is all my opinion, mind you, (laughs) but they probably did a pretty good job of screening out and making sure that the sample of participants, both prisoners and guards, because they were selected from the same pool, were how neurotypicals behave in authority structures, specifically authoritarian authority structures. Right, exactly. And one of those researchers who joined on the sixth day and put a stop to it was Christina Maslach of the Maslach burnout inventory. So many of the researchers went on to study prison reform, went into psychology. Many of the participants went on to study prison reform or work in areas of psychology. Christina Maslach looked at caring professions and at burnout because she she's the one who put a stop to it. She was uh, dated. She's now married to Philip Zimbardo, and he is now studying heroism. So I tell everyone, like, if you read anything by Philip Zimbardo, like, read to the end of the book because <laughs> if you read the first half, you're going to depress yourself. You got to read to the part where he talks about heroism. <laughs> and um, the Lucifer effect's a great read, but not for the first few chapters. You got to you got to get through to that end. And, and she um, she put a stop to it. And now he looks at heroism in, in part because he really wanted to know, like, what made her stand up to all these other researchers who were so embedded in it that they were all saying, isn't this great? Isn't this interesting? And she was the only one to go in there and say, absolutely not. This is, you have to put a stop to this. Yeah. I don't think anybody walks into their job working with individuals with intellectual disability or individuals with autism or working with any sort of caring profession. I don't think anybody walks into that job with the intention to do harm. I really don't. I think that they walk in there because they really want to make a positive impact on a person's life. And I think over time, everything does kind of become another day at the office. And if the culture is one in which the coping mechanism is to where your emotional capacity is dependent on like not caring that much when you hurt an individual, then I think that that's problematic. Well, and part of it also is a little bit the attitude you have when you go in. And that's one of the reasons why underpinnings of our philosophy are so important Mm -hmm. for the behavior analysts in the audience. They've heard of, the seven dimensions of behavior analysis. But for those who are not familiar with it, before behavior analysis became fully structured the way it is now, there there were seven dimensions that were 
were talked about. And one of those is social significance. And social significance is measured both by the impact on the society, but also how the individual experiences it. And it can't be separated. You can't say, well, one without the other. And so with the social significance measure, the use of contingent electric shock does not pass because we have so many individuals who are reporting that it's causing ongoing long-term suffering. And okay, so physically they, they, oh, maybe I'm going to do a little devil's advocate here. Maybe they have just a few burns and that sort of thing, but their life is otherwise better and they've got some memory of pain, right? Wrong. Because we have people who are still suffering from the impacts of that. And we understand and are very aware of the impact of what the excessive application of punishment does. And please note that from the behavior analytic perspective, punishment is defined as a stimulus that follows a behavior that reduces future behaviors in the same class. So if I were to mispronounce your name, for example, and then you were to correct me, and then future times I pronounce your name, I pronounce it correctly, that is classified as punishment because you corrected me. That is a punisher right? Um, reinforcement is defined as a stimulus following a behavior that increases or maintains future similar behaviors. So if I then pronounce your name correctly moving forward and you smile, I have been reinforced. And that's important. Important to understand that when punishment as a mechanism is utilized, that it is utilized as a corrector, and then reinforcement is applied moving forward. Now, just because I'm describing reinforcement and punishment in these ways does not mean that there are not nefarious and insidious ways that it can be used. There are. Reinforcement and punishment both. In fact, I've been striving to operationally define, which is the big deal for behavior analysts, operational definition is being able to define something so that anybody can, who sees it and has read it can be able to identify what it is. So I've been striving to identify autistic masking. And autistic masking is the result of a very heavy application of punishment contingencies, followed by a very thin or light application of reinforcement contingencies for non-autistic characteristics. So autistic characteristics are punished on a heavy schedule. Non-autistic, even even passing like rough attempts at are reinforced on a light schedule. And then that creates a prolonged negative effect on the individual. So again, just because I'm describing these in a dispassionate and, and lack of judgment way, when I'm talking about stimulus and this, that, and the other, doesn't mean that it can't be bad. It can be, but conversely, it can also be really good because you see your child and your child smiles and you smile and your child laughs and you laugh and your child does something wonderful and you give them a hug and say, I'm so proud of you. That's all reinforcement. Or your child does something like maybe their child's petting a puppy and it pulls the puppy's ear and you go, no, no, don't do that. Just punished right there. But then you immediately say, you do this and you show them how to pet the puppy softly and gently. And you apply reinforcement and then you praise for that. That's how behavior is shaped. Uh, specifically, operant and reflexive behaviors are what behavior analysts deal with, not to be confused with other behaviors that are outside of our purview. But the important thing that I'm trying to get at here is that 
just because the, the the word punishment is connected to it when a behavior analyst talks about it doesn't mean it has to be highly aversive or pain-inducing. And in fact, ABAI put out a statement against corporal punishment. ABAI is the Association for Behavior Analysis International. Exactly. It's like the biggest kind of professional membership group in behavior analysis. I'm going to get a little personal. Like, I feel like what I find most heartbreaking about discussions like this is that what I have found has drawn me the most to behavior analysis is this idea of positive approaches. And I remember hearing a podcast about Dave Pilkey, who is the author of Captain Underpants and Dog Man. And, you know, so I have, I have three kids who are huge Captain Underpants fans. And I was like listening to this podcast. And um, he has ADHD as do two of my children. And uh, so he was talking about his experience as a kid. And he talked about being in fourth grade and his teacher hitting him so hard that they broke the paddle. And this being absolutely legendary in his school and his parents finding out from another parent because the kids went home from school and saying, wow, did you hear like... Oh, Dave, you know, they hit Dave so hard, they broke the paddle. And then the parents went to his parents. Like he was too ashamed to tell his parents. And, and I just thought, oh, that's why I'm in behavior analysis because that no child should ever go through that. No child should ever go through that. Like every child should have some, some positive, some great job, some, I love how you did that. Some, wow, you drew this amazing comic book. So I think what I find really heartbreaking about this is that I feel like the potential of this science for really life-changing methodologies is so much more in what we can do that's strengths-based and not in what we can do that's that's punishment-oriented. And I think that, you know, Brian, you make these, these are wonderful examples. And what I think is really great about them is that they're just, you know, natural things that you come up against in everyday life, right? You know, yeah. so you would say like, oh, it's nice to meet you, Anne Birney. And I would say, no, actually, it's pronounced burn. That happens to me <laughs> on a daily basis because my name is called very frankly. <laughs> and, and one argument that's made in behavior analysis for those who are advocates for punishment is, well, the world's full of punishment. There's nothing wrong with punishment in and of itself. And that's true. There are a lot of natural punishers. Punishment is what keeps our fingers out of light sockets. Punishment is what... It's a survival thing. Yeah, it, it is a survival thing. But, you know, the world is filled with, like, suffering and cruelty, too. We don't have to add more of it. Yeah. And corporal punishment is the use of intentional cause of pain to stop a behavior. Right. And there are other ways to stop. And, and there's also, if you stop a behavior, you don't necessarily teach anything else. The function of that behavior is not going away. So whatever drives that behavior to continue, whatever need or desire was there that motivate that behavior is still going to be there. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a phenomenon that is, is very well documented called behavior contrast. That's the name we give it. It basically is 
if in this one setting, the behavior is punished in this other setting, so it, it might drop to zero or be very, be very sneaky, but in another setting, this behavior is going to blow up. It's going to be massive amounts. And interestingly, in some of the documents that have come out of Judge Rotenberg Center that have been revealed due to court cases against them, especially through the FDA. So one of the, the examples that was brought forth, the conclusion was this behavior has been brought under stimulus control. Stimulus control, for those who are not aware, basically means that the behavior has been, been reduced in the presence of a stimuli. And again, these terms are neutral. So stimulus control also explains why you sit up and move things out of the way when your waiter comes to the table and not when anybody walks by. You know, like these, these are just phenomena that explain what naturally occurs. Yeah. Or when you walk from a hallway into a chapel, you reduce your voice's volume and you talk more quietly and a little bit more nicely and reverently, even if you're not of that particular faith. That's right. stimulus control. It basically just says, oh, in the presence of this thing, my behavior alters. And so the, the conclusion by the behavior analyst who wrote that was that it was brought under stimulus control, but that the individual would need to have the device for the rest of their life or something to that effect. I could be misquoting it exactly, but something to the effect of this device must be attached to them continuously from now on uh, in some way or shape or form, which that's not effective. That's not bringing something under stimulus control. That's not teaching replacement or alternative or incompatible behaviors, which is what behavior analysts are all about. Um, I like to say that we're actually not clinicians. We're scientist teachers. It's just that our society calls us clinicians. So it's like, okay, well, I guess we'll go with it. But like, it's a funding thing, right? <laughs> I transitioned very naturally from going from being a, a special ed teacher where I thrived until you added in administration and all the BS that they make teachers do because I loved my kids. I loved, and my secret to working with them was first and foremost, they were, they are people. I would talk to them like an adult. I would like, yeah, I talk to them at the level of language that they're at, but I would, I would address them. I would be there with them. I was, yeah, I was their teacher. Like I belonged to them in that I was giving of my time and myself to them because I love them. Mm -hmm. And then becoming a behavior analyst felt so natural to me because it was like, oh, okay. So I'm being more strategic in this, but I'm maintaining this this love of humanity yeah. and uh, I, as i like to say the nerdiest way to be compassionate is to say all behavior is right for that individual within their context yeah absolutely specifically operant and reflexive behavior because obviously if, a, if you're having an epileptic seizure seizure that's not necessarily right for them but uh, <laughs> and that's a different class of behavior but um all behavior is right for that individual and i i helped a teacher as a behavior analyst in training, I helped a teacher see that compassion by sharing that exact phrase to them. And then all of a sudden, the dynamic shifted between this teacher and the student where the teacher was antagonizing the student and vice versa. And now the teacher sees, oh, wait, it's right for them? Oh, and then the behavior of the teacher was altered. 
And then that classroom went from the student's least favorite classroom where every day he would come to me and complain and talk about how mean that teacher was to by the end of that school year, when that kid left that middle school, he loved that teacher and was excited to go see them. That's behavior analysis. It's human. It's so human. It's so beautiful because it's like we're just breaking down the components. But just like with breaking down the components of a house, you don't just take a board and, and, and stick it up and say, that's a house. You put, the, you put it together through pieces. And we build it together. And that's the beautiful thing about behavior analysis. So mm-hmm. why I, I frequently get told that I'm a traitor by the autistic community, and it hurts to hear that. And I frequently get asked, why are you choosing to be a behavior analyst when there are other helping professions that you can be in? And my response is what I just said there. <laughs> That's my approach also. And I, I'm really having this analytical view. One thing that I say a lot to parents, you know, because this is that's most of the context where I have this conversation. I'll have parents ask me like, oh, you know, should he be doing this? And should he be doing that? And is this a sign of autism? And I'll, and I'll say, you know, it really, we're not here to treat autism specifically. We're here to treat behaviors. And those behaviors, we really look at, does, is this interfering with this child doing the job of being a kid? And the job of being a kid I've defined because you're right, Brian, behavior analysts love to define stuff and I'm no exception. So the job of being a kid is growing and learning and playing and making friends. So if you have a really intense interest in the color yellow, that does not interfere with growing, learning, playing, or making friends. Uh, or you have a, like a really huge interest in like the New York subway system or math or dinosaurs or like that does not, in, in a lot of cases, it can enhance your ability mm-hmm. to learn, play and make friends because now you have a cool interest that w- that is a gateway to all sorts of other things. I'd also like to throw in there that like, it doesn't necessarily have to include a special interest because I have a, a, a client, a learner, a student, if you will, of mine who is graduating. And he's between the ages of five and seven. And it's time for him to graduate. He's done. And the, so interestingly, like a month before we were going to graduate him out and he was going to be done with ABA, I went to his IEP meeting and his teachers were talking about all the great progress he's made and all this other stuff. And then one of the teachers said, the one problem is that during recess, he plays by himself. And I went, why is that a problem? And they go, well, you know, he's just not playing with others. And I'm like, so it's his time. Right. And, and they go, well, yeah, but he should be able to play with others. I'm like, yes, he can. We've worked on that. He's now able to play with others. He was able to sit down and share resources and, and collaborate and do all these different things. We've figured that out, but it's his time. So if it's his time and he wants to be alone, there's nothing wrong with that. All right, guys, I just want to bring us back on topic. I love the conversation, but I think there are some other things we wanted to get to also. Yes. So what's been happening at the at JRC has been going on for decades. And as you were mentioning before, and the, the history of the implementation, why is this such a hot topic right now? Can you kind of, one of you, can you go back to that legal action that was taken by the FDA and just kind of walk us through 
and bring us to the point of last weekend's conference at ABAI? Well, to be clear, there have been legal actions taken, like, again, like every few years, there's a lawsuit or a story in the press or something about the Judge Rotenberg Center that comes to light as a result of a lawsuit, lawsuit usually, and then it fizzles. So there's a lot of public interest, and then it fizzles. The difference this time was, I think, in part, the timing and who was involved. So March 2020, when granted, we were all kind of distracted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we were, uh, we were a little uh, self-involved with COVID. And, and, you know, that was during a time when we were, you know, washing all of our groceries with Clorox and all sorts of other <laughs> nutty things. So during that time, the FDA banned the use of the GED device. The UN has also banned the use of, of contingent skin shock. And classified it as uh, torture. Thank you. And classified it as torture. The, what's the name of the organization here? The International Association for the Scientific Study of Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities also published a position paper condemning the use of contingent skin shock in December of 2020. So all of this kind of came to a head. The Judge Rotenberg Center appealed the decision by the FDA so that they could continue to use contingent skin shock. As behavior analysts, we do need to follow legal requirements. Mm -hmm. My interpretation of that is follow legal requirements, not argue with legal requirements and find other ways to follow legal requirements. My interpretation of that is the law says this, you follow it, not go back and try to shimmy around. And my argument would also be that our responsibility is to follow legal requirements and our ethical code, and that our ethical code goes beyond legal requirements. And the ethical code for behavior analysts, according to the BACB, um, which is probably the loosest when it comes to ethical requirements, because there's other behavior analyst organizations, certification organizations out there who are more stringent. But hey, we're going to have a, a have that bar. So according to the BACB, the application of punishment should always be done as last resort and always be faded back as quickly as possible. And we should always be looking for opportunities for differentials and always make decisions towards the benefit of the client. Right. And it, what it specifically says is that the behavior and it should be discontinued in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. That also, now there's some room for interpretation in timely manner, but this person should wear this device for the rest of their lives. I'm going to argue that's not super timely. So what was JRC's argument in the appeal? How did it get overturned? The argument was, Again, I say again because this is a repeated argument and this is often what comes up when in like sort of public statements, in the press. The argument was that their clients have behaviors that are potentially life-threatening and therefore this is the only effective treatment and therefore they should be permitted to use it. And yet there are behavior analysts throughout the world who treat without utilizing this effectively. 
And yet, for some reason, the 55 students that are at Judd Rotenberg Center are the worst of the worst from the entire world. And there's no other way that we can provide effective treatment. Yes. If we were to look at it strictly from a dispassionate argumentation perspective, which I happily don't. (laughs) (laughs) I start there and then I build off of that because this is a human rights issue. There's that issue is part of it. Like why, you know, like how is it possible that only the center and then there's the other piece of it, which is the claim is that, you know, the, the residents of this particular center must have the behavior treated with this particular treatment, but there are other behaviors that are also using the same treatment. So that's where I, that's where I find the disconnect. One of the concerns that I have is the, the misleading information. And I think also it, what I, what I realized listening to some of the speak, there was a, um, a task force that met at our conference this past weekend to discuss the making a position statement on the use of contingent electric shock. And it was sort of a town hall format. So people got up and speak. And two of those people were employees of the Judge Rotenberg Center. One was, I believe, the clinical director, and one was in another clinical position. And the argument that they made was, again, oh, our clients really need this because their behaviors are so life-threatening. And so I'm concerned about the misleading information and that this is always what's presented. The other thing I'm concerned about, something that I noticed, is it's if you're using this same treatment for multiple behaviors with the same clients, but the argument is our clients need this, then you're not, as Brian and I were saying, you're not treating behavior. Mm-hmm. You're treating clients. And that, I think, is where we get into, are you addressing each behavior by asking yourself, is this behavior socially significant? And if it is, to whom is it socially significant? So if you're going to treat, say, I'm going to pick a controversial example on purpose, you're going to treat compliance. Um, in a five-year-old who is in a classroom, is that socially significant within this environment? If your client lines up every single time the kindergarten teacher says line up, but all the other kids are running around on the carpet, where do you really want your client? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You want them running around on the carpet, right? You want them doing what the other kids do. You don't want them socializing with adults. This isn't sex in the city. This is kindergarten class. Like socialize with kids. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're fun, kid, but I'm not. Go socialize with your friends. <laughs> so, um, so I think that that piece is a little disconcerting. And I think that that may be a big part of the piece of the difference between treating ABA is more of a curative model, like I'm going to treat the person and I'm going to make them a different person versus treating ABA as a supportive model. I'm going to treat these behaviors and help this individual change their behaviors so that they're happier and healthier and more capable of doing the job of being a kid. Mm -hmm. I say kid because I work with children. So that's always my mindset, but. Got it. Yeah. And I'm open to corrections or, or arguments, Brian. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I think you did a really good job there. I do want to kind of bring it back though to what we were we're talking about with the timeline and and with JRC, because um, in 2013, the UN issued an appeal to the United States. Uh, oh, sorry, um, or was it 2012? Uh, asking that the U.S. government investigate the use of the GED. And in 2013, that's when it was declared to be a violation of the UN, UN's Convention Against Torture. 2014 was when the FDA attempted to start the process for banning and led up to the stuff that was talked about previously. But here's something important to understand, that efforts to and JRC's use of aversive stimuli towards a modifying behavior has been going on since 1985. Mm-hmm. And there have been multiple representatives in government who've tried to, to end it, one of whom, most notably Senator Brian Joyce, stated in his frustration, by the way, if the same treatment were allowed at terrorists in Guantanamo Bay, there would be worldwide outrage. Mm-hmm. So this has been an ongoing problem. And to add to that timeline, so on Easter Day <laughs> of this year, the CEO of Neuroclastic, Tara Vance, received a certified mail with a cease and desist from Judge Rotenberg Center for an article that Neuroclastic wrote that surveyed 900 behavior analysts on their opinions for contingent electric shock. And in that article, six behavior analysts were quoted. A couple were anonymous. Others were not, including myself. Three of the behavior analysts quoted are neurodivergent, including myself. And in this cease and desist, there was a claim of of defamation and libel. And was uh, the cease and desist threatened lawsuit if the article was not taken down. And myself and the two other neurodiverse individuals were specifically cited in the cease and desist. No other behavior analysts were cited, just the autistic ones, which maybe they understood that that was what they were doing. Maybe not. I don't know. I cannot offer conjecture on that. I can only say that that's what the facts are. But after consulting with a legal team, we published the fact that they were trying to silence us. And in the article, all the information that was presented is information that comes from court cases, from FDA, from the UN. It comes from former employees and survivors. So in order for something to be considered liable or defamation, it needs to be a lie, right? But it can't be an opinion. That doesn't count, right? Um, So... In that case, that article expresses two very important things. It it, it, it shares information that comes from reputable sources. So then JRC needs to sue the FDA and all the news outlets and all those other people before they can sue us, right? Or it is an expression of an opinion. And in both cases, those are protected speech and they cannot claim to be subject to defamation or to liable 
as a result of that. But you know, the, this is a very common tactic in legal circles. I have worked as a disabilities advocate. I do it very quietly and my fee is $1 <laughs> uh, to, to help certain people because people will reach out to me and ask for my opinion and help. I am no legal expert. I do not do legal services. But what I do do is I talk about what the disability rights law laws are and, and offer my interpretation of them. And in each and every single case where I have sub added a, acted as a consultant and support for a person who is challenging some organization, be it a school district or a private employer for not adhering to the Individuals with Disabilities Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act, every single time with the exception of one, so five time, four out of five times, a legal team has sent some sort of letter like this hmm. to try to silence the person, intimidate them. And each and every time my response has been, they're scared. <laughs> Talk to your lawyer, but I'm reading this as they're scared. And in those four cases, every single time they settled when they got pushed back. Mm. So this is just me talking about my experience. I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen with JRC. But what I am saying is that when cease and desist like that are issued, either one, it's valid and you must comply with it because X, Y, Z, or two, they're trying to intimidate you. And in this particular case, we have all the documentation. It's all backed up. It's all available for folks to be able to see and read. And so therefore they have no case, but either way it backfired on them because we published what they were doing. And then somebody started to go fund me for neuroplastic and within 12 hours, $10,000 was raised. And within 48 hours, it doubled, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Uh, but the timing was perfect because the day after we published this, Dr. Amy Odom and Dr. Jonathan Tarbox sent a letter to the Association for Behavior Analysis International resigning from their positions. They were the coordinators for the conference uh, in different roles. In this letter, they stipulated their reason for resignation was due to being blocked from doing their jobs. And one of the things that they were trying to do was, as part of their jobs, push back against Judge Rotenberg Center being able to present because it does not apply to the majority of behavior analysis. It does not have applications, should not have applications. They've had the ability to present on this topic for over 20 years. It doesn't fall under the social significance measure. It doesn't conform with it. And clearly there is some sort of conflict of interest there. I don't know what it is, but it's there. I think what was interesting about that letter is it wasn't even the Judge Rotenberg Center presenting, which they've done, as you're saying, for decades. They've like mm -hmm. presented case studies. They've presented all sorts of things. But the presentation itself seemed to, I, I can't remember uh, Dr. Tarbuck's exact phrasing, but it seemed to encourage the use of contingent shock. Mm -hmm. And that was his concern, is that it wanted, that it, seem to encourage expansion of this methodology. And so he raised some ethical concerns about this presentation and exactly. from doing his job. So it was now, again, this is another thing where, you know, I fully admit that I am one of the behavior analysts who was really late to join the bandwagon because first of all, there was a lot of, Oh, well, 
you know, these behaviors are so severe, if it's a choice between life and death, et cetera, et cetera. There was that factor. And I admit that, that, uh, that I, I didn't peel that onion far enough. And the other factor is, you know, there are a lot of presentations at ABAI. A lot of people can present and allowing lots of people to present allows students to present. So that means there are lots of opportunities. Also, lots of people can buy an exhibit booth and it allows a lot of people to be able to get exposure at ABAI. So it, it does allow, you know, voices we don't hear to be able to be heard. So mm-hmm. I was a little bit like, meh, what can we do? Yeah, you know, like this is the cost of, you know, like, but then hearing that, wait a minute, there are exceptions being made. There are abuses being called out here. Yeah. And part of it was that with Amy, Amy Odom and, and Jonathan Tarbox's efforts, they were undermined in their role and the executive council bypassed peer review. Their claim is they didn't bypass peer review. They created their own peer review, but that's bypass. Come on. Uh, that's bypass. <laughs> like you, you, As I like to say over and over again, I'm autistic. I'm not stupid. Please come on. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but, uh, and, and you know what behavior analysts aren't stupid either, but uh Anyways, so the, the, the bypass of peer review happened and they were given even more than what was normally given. They were given four opportunities to present on top of the special event where we were talking about contingent electric shock. And so they had four times a minimum of 50 minutes each to be able to platform. And then they had two of their employees speaking at the town hall on top of that. And they presented a lot of information and they, they, they made all sorts of claims. Some of it's recorded. So now we can see verify whether or not their claims are accurate or not. I can tell you right now, one of their claims they made was that the FDA reversed their position on whether or not contingent electric shock is considered abuse, which I have yet to find a reversal on that. <laughs> so I'm confused as to that. But that's that's the huge issue and one of the reasons why a lot of behavior analysts are angry about this is because a system and approach that is tried and true and is foundational to being a behavior analyst and being a science was undermined. So, Brian, I did find, though, that the FDA's ban was overturned. Overturned, but that doesn't mean that they reverse their opinion on whether it's torture. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. Yeah. Right. Over overturning and, and reversal of opinion are two different stories. Right. Okay. Got it. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> Brian, could you like that? See, here we get into where there could be a lot of misunderstanding. I think it's a lot of the misunderstanding that has kept people on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think it's a lot of misunderstanding and it's the the way that it has been depersonalized. And so therefore, when we have that very abstract language that we utilize, when we use euphemistic labeling, when we displace responsibility, when we are not aware of the pain and suffering that's going on, it's very easy to be able to say, oh, well, they eloped. No, no, they ran away because they were terrified. They were trying to escape a condition that they felt they were under threat. Yeah. That's a totally different from they eloped. 
right? And so uh, a big part of it is that behavior analysts aren't educated on what's actually happening. And social validity, that measure requires the perspective of the person who is receiving the services. And it doesn't pass social validity. And when behavior analysts are hearing stuff like Jennifer Masumba talking about how she was dehumanized to the point she was strapped down to a four-point board and was washed and her genitalia was washed in front of people, in front of cameras, and she heard somebody, a male voice coming over the uh, speaker system saying she needs to be shocked for that because she did something. That, that, that is dehumanization to the nth degree. It is ridiculous. And even if we were to just re- refer to this as from just a dispassionate scientific perspective, it doesn't pass muster. But when we add in that human component, which should have been added in from the get-go, by the way, when we add that human component in, it's a full stop, no, we're done. This is not go okay. It should have been this way from the very beginning. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping to do, and I know a lot of other behaviorists like yourself are hoping to do, and is to bring back that humanistic perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's not a question of whether we can, it's a matter of whether we should. Humans first. Absolutely. So just... As it stands right now, so that conference that you guys were mentioning happened last weekend, last Memorial Day weekend, and ABAI is still conducting kind of that investigation, right? They haven't released anything yet, so we're kind of waiting around still. Yeah. Okay. But I will say that at the end of that particular event, Dr. Pilgrim came up and she added some words, and her words were very telling. One of the things that she said is that we will not make decisions based off of histrionics. This is the president. Of this the is AI. the former president now. I, I didn't realize, but she was finishing her term and the next person was taking okay. it. Got it. But um, So Dr. Carol Pilgrim, she said that. And then not two minutes later, she also said that we need to make sure our decisions based off of facts, not alternative facts. That might not be a direct quote, but she did refer to the information that we who are engaging in histrionics, according to her, uh, she referred to the information that we're disseminating through court documents, through Judge Rotenberg Center's own records through direct comparison with consultation with electrical engineers, through the FDA's documents, through the UM's documents, through reports from former employees and survivors of Judge Rotenberg Center, she referred to and lumped all of those in damning pieces of evidence against the use of contingent electric skin shock and against Judge Rotenberg Center as alternative facts. And the letter that was sent prior to ABAI 2022 was also filled with all sorts of contradictory things like saying, if we did not allow for presentation, we will be, be making a position, taking a position. And then the followed by, but presentation of something does not necessarily mean we're taking a position. So which is it? And also in that same letter, there was an appeal to listen to each other and talk to each other, which is really interesting to me because that only applies to those who have privilege. That only applies to behavior analysts who have 
certifications that doesn't apply to the people who are receiving the services that doesn't apply to autistics as a whole and it's very interesting how ABAI did a very good job of making sure that only people who could comment were people who either paid for a ticket or have membership in ABAI. That is what bothered me about the term histrionics is that it really, it struck me as tone policing, which, you know, as a middle-aged white lady, I get it. Like, you know, like I get, I, I was also raised to like be polite and like you catch more flies with honey, et cetera. And that is generally my default. Please and thank you is my default for sure. But I do think it's a mark of privilege. And, you know, my interpretation of what she was saying was like, let's all talk politely to each other and try to work this out and not get angry. And I think that the level of frustration and anger is appropriate. You know, there, there were speakers who at the sort of town hall format who were saying, why can't you call out your own field? Who were very emotional about it. And they had every right to be. This is really frustrating. I'm heartbroken and angry about it. This goes to another problem that's present in behavior analysis, which is, and it's not just behavior analysis. This is a cultural thing. And, and it's not just Western culture. There's other cultures who struggle with this too. But I'm going to talk about my culture because that's what I have to comment on. And the cultural thing is someone says, ow, that hurts. The response should be, oh, take a step back. I'm sorry. What hurt? What did I do that hurt you? That's the response that should be. What the response is now is, ow, that hurts. Oh, you're just being tender. You're just being sensitive. Oh, you're just being a baby. You know, Behavior analysis has been rightfully accused of being robotic, dispassionate, and cruel. Note I said rightfully. And the reason it's rightfully is because this toxic concept has crept in from methodological behaviorism, which is the predecessor to radical behaviorism. So methodological behaviorism is John Watson. Radical behaviorism is B.F. Skinner and moving forward of emotions, thoughts, feelings, memories, they don't count. That's methodological behaviorism. But radical behaviorism, the thing that made us radical, the thing that made us unique was all of those things count as behaviors even if the observer is one. And B.F. Skinner at all were proven right because now we can measure brain waves, we can see the emotions going on in the brain, we can saw, see the electrical signals, the chemical signals, we have all this ability to measure it. So we've proven, we're proven right. And yet for some reason, magically, we're going to ignore all that and we're going to say, oh, well, that's mentalism. You know what's mentalism is using mentalism as a stop think as a way of, of, of saying no. And just for those who don't know, mentalism is, uh, it, it's an insight of behavior analysis, uh, and not just behavior analysis, but we use it a lot, jargon referring to how circular logic is created to justify things. An example of mentalism, specifically explanatory fiction, would be I needed water because I was thirsty, which is accurate, but is mentalistic because it's a circular logic. You needed water because you had a deprivation of water. You had been without water for a long time. Thirst is the symptom of going without water for a long time. 
but that that's a common clarion cry I hear from people who are using it as a stops think of that's mentalism. I'm not going to think about it, but here's the thing. Behavior analysis, when we're talking about reflexive and operant behaviors, it applies and emotions come from somewhere. Anger is a distancing contingency. It's a get that away from me. It, it can also serve as an attention and a, an access and, and, and automatic because those are the functions, right? But as a general rule, when the anger first comes up, it's a distancing contingency. Same thing for anxiety. Anxiety is a behavior. It can be measured. It can be observed both from one's visual perception and from a uh, medical perspective. So it, it counts as a behavior. No, it's not mentalistic to say that somebody has anxiety. All of our emotions serve a function because the foundation of behavior analysis is that all operant and reflexive behaviors are rational for that individual within their context, period. Stop. No more. So I don't use terminology such as maladaptive because it's not maladaptive. It serves a function for that individual. When I use the term problem behavior, I refer to uh, target behavior of note or concern. That's how I do it. And it's very clunky, but it helps me to keep my mindset because that's the important thing that I'm trying to get at here is that the way we approach determines a lot. And even me being autistic and a behavior analyst with all the experiences that I have, I'm also ADHD and non-binary and all the other fun stuff that goes in with that. Even with my experiences, I have my biases. I cannot be considered the authority on neurodiversity. I can only offer my perspective. And I have to operate with philosophical doubt. I have to approach the entire, every single time I work with a new person. And I don't mean just the first time. I mean, every single time I have to go in with the eyes of a toddler with the curiosity of a scientist and try to understand from their perspective and put myself there. And so if any member of Judge Rotenberg Center or ABAI is listening to this, I want to ask you a question. If I were you and you were me and I was in pain and you felt fine, how do you feel? I'm going to say that one more time. If I were you and you were me and I was in pain and you felt fine, how do you feel? Because this is about perspective taking. And if you cannot operate as a scientist who can take perspective, then you don't belong in this field because you can do incredible harm. And even when I take perspective, I've made mistakes. I've screwed up. And I have to own that. And I have to go to the person that I screwed up with and apologize to them and try to make it right, not brush it under the rug, not pretend it didn't happen. Because this is what being human is. Perfection is toxic. There's no such thing as perfection. But there is making an effort. There is engaging with the other person. There is pro-social. And we are social beings that need to see the other person. We can't assign to another person other and expect to be considered dispassionate scientists. If we other another person, if we assign to them subhuman category, then we have failed. Because the purpose of science is bettering the human condition. 
It's not a matter of whether we can, it's a matter of whether we should. Yeah. Well said, Brian. I do want to wrap up and I have one last question. This kind of ties into, I think, something you wanted to say earlier. And, you know, now there's a lot circling about what's happening on social media, in the news outlets. So what advice would you give to people who are eager to take action right now? Like, what can they do that will actually make a difference? Well, if you live in New York State, there is a law in the New York State Assembly right now, um, or I believe the New York State Senate, excuse me, to ban the use of contingent skin shots. Many of the Judge Redenberg Center's clients are sent from New York State or from the New York City metro area. So this law would really impact some very vulnerable individuals in New York State. So if you live in New York, contact your representatives and urge them to put a staff to contingent elected skin shots. And um, if you don't know who your representatives are, I love to use ResistBot. So if you text RESIST to 50409, they will tell you who your representatives are and you can contact them and let them know that you support the end to contingent skin shots for individuals with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Great. So um, the actions that I'm going to suggest here, there are a variety of them. First and foremost, in behavior analysis, there's this idea called discrimination training. And it's the idea that if you're not aware of something, you can't do something about it. Uh, the idea is that, you know, if you can discriminate between orange and yellow, tell the difference between the two, then you can know when something is orange and when something's yellow. A simple concept, right? Well, um, the reason why I started taking action is because I received discrimination training for what is actually going on. There was a confusion of terminology. That's why we talked about ECT early on. And so that's part of it. But also part of the discrimination training is sharing the stories of those who have been victims of this. So Jennifer Masumba's story, Shouting at Leaves, is is the one that stands most to mind. Reading her book is very important. I highly recommend it. I also recommend looking up the, the true crime podcast, Least of These. Think of the least of these, but just least of these. And listen to the podcast, uh, The Shocking Truth. There, It's an eight-episode series. There might be a ninth one coming out. Oh, thank you, Anne. The, the bill that Anne mentioned, Andre's Law, is Bill S8935 in New York State. So educate yourself first so that you're aware of what's going on. And Least of These and Behind the Bastards is another podcast that did a two-episode series on this. So that way you know what's going on and what you're opposing. Then disseminate, share. Every single thing that I've been putting out there, and I know I've been doing a bit of a meme war. It's kind of my thing. Sorry. Uh, Sorry, not sorry. Um, (laughs) Everything that I've been doing has, uh, I have intentionally not put my logo on it. Not because I don't want people to know who did it. I am very open about that. I want you to share, reshare, use. I don't care. I don't want credit. What I want is I want people to be aware. And I am perhaps the loudest in this fight, but I am by no means the leader. And I know a lot of people have, have 
reached out to me say thank you for leading the charge and all this other stuff and i'm over here like i'm just the dude who wants to be known for silly memes teaching about cool concepts <laughs> that's what i want to be known for i don't i don't want attention for this i've had people try to get me to capitalize on this and i have very intentionally made sure i do not make a penny off of this i've been doing everything i can to instead give money towards the cause through my action through my own expenses through my contributions because this is important to me that this is what good humans do. So talking about education, sharing it out with folks, also supporting organizations. Neuroclastic is one of them. Occupy JRC is another one. These folks have been doing the work for years and years, and there are many more that I can name, but we have limited time. If you are a behavior analyst, then support organizations that are ethical. Go to the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Go to Black Applied Behavior Analysts, which is another professional association. Go to Women in Behavior Analysis. Those are just three off the top of my head that I can name. And give your support and your money. Oh, Massachusetts Association of Behavior Analysis has also issued a position paper against contingent electric shock as well. So that's right. If you are a chapter member in Massachusetts, you go on being a chapter member. And they're one of the only chapters who has done that. I, I believe in the UK, there's a chapter that has done that. And there are certain groups within the Association for Behavior Analysis International that have. There's actually been several associations that have actually withdrawn their membership because of ABAI's, um, what they've been doing. So that, that's also something to be aware of. And local chapters do tend to be better at this sort of thing. So pressure your local chapters into doing that. Whether you're a behavior analyst or not, write them. Look up who it is and, and write them. Tell them that they need to have a position on this. Pressure organizations that you work with, whether they be not-for-profit or for-profit. There's actually been a couple for-profit organizations who have openly condemned the use of aversive stimuli, not just contingent electric shock, but also sensory deprivation, also contingent food access and things like that, because those are also a problem. Support organizations that are for this sort of ascent-based treatment. If you are receiving ABA services, or rather more specifically, a family member of yours is receiving ABA services, push back hold the ABA company to your expectations. You have rights to protect your child and to make sure your child's assent is recognized. Expect them to use assent-based practice. You have that power. They can't just say, well, this is how we do it. No, no, no. The, our ethics code requires it. So push for them to look into approaches such as assent-based practice. Hanley's uh, HRE is a really good approach. It's not the only one, but it's it's a common one. So happy, relaxed, engaged, my way, those sorts of things. Greg Hanley is the, the person who has done a lot of really good work there. Push back against that where you are at now. So it's not just something bigger beyond you. May I add on to that also? If you are a clinician and you propose a treatment and the family says no, thank them raise them. Hmm. It takes a lot of strength of character to say no to a clinician. So if, if a family tells me, you know what, that really isn't going to work for our family, I thank them. And I say that really does take a lot of strength of character. 
thank you for saying no to me. And I propose something better. Remember that you are not necessarily that child's last clinician. So take that responsibility seriously and shape that behavior and set those expectations that consent is mandatory. You have to have consent in order to move forward. And that withdrawal of consent or refusal of consent is an option. So if you are a clinician and a family refuses consent, say thank you. So the last one um, just want to mention out there because that's important is be aware of the language that you use because the language that you use matters. It really does. And that's a part of discrimination training for behavior analysts, parents, everybody, because how you say things and how you refer to people influences what happens. So be, be thoughtful about your language. My language is ever shifting. This last Monday, I learned a new thing. And so now I, re- I have removed the term intervention from my conversation piece with the exception of in life-threatening situations. That's an intervention. But otherwise, it's services. Hmm, interesting. Got it. Thank you, Tara Vance, for teaching me that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do that too. The way that you talk about things really influences the way that you think about things. And, and right. mm-hmm. it's... I'm going to start using that too. It all matters. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing your your ideas and your opinions. And this is something that, you know, the Global Autism Project, we obviously do not condone the use of any kind of harm. This is an important topic that we have to keep the conversation going until it's actually fully addressed. So, yeah, I want to thank you guys for your time and your willingness to just be open. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. The Global Autism Project unequivocally condemns the use of painful aversive procedures under any circumstances, including the use of contingent electric skin shock. In accordance with the United Nations, we believe that the use of CESS is torturous and inhumane, and we advocate for the discontinuation of this concerning and unethical practice. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.